This is Foster McCurley from the Wrestling with the Word podcast, and this is our discussion of the Bible text for June 13, 2010. This is episode number 77, and our passages are those listed in the Revised Common Lectionary for Lectionary 11, third Sunday after Pentecost. My focus is on the work of God within the context of the situation in which the people of God lived. Therefore, I ask of each biblical passage two questions. The first is, what is God doing here? That question, of course, must be answered by a statement in which God is the subject of an active verb. The second question is this, what is the situation in which God is doing it? That question forces us to look at the spiritual or theological issues that were affecting the people of the time. I will therefore begin my discussion of each passage with one sentence in which I try to answer both questions. What is God doing here, and what is the situation in which God is doing it? For a fuller discussion of my approach, please listen to episode number one. This Sunday is called the third Sunday after Pentecost, year C. Check out the show notes on the lessons at wrestlingwiththeword.com. You will find there some comments on the Hebrew and Greek words that are important in the passages, as well as some cross-references to other biblical texts that help illumine the ones we are studying. The biblical passages for the third Sunday after Pentecost, year C, are these. The psalm is number 32. The first lesson is the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 26 through chapter 12, first verse 10, and then verses 13 through 15. The second lesson is Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 2 verses 15 through 21, and the gospel for the day is from Luke chapter 7 verse 36 through chapter 8 verse 3. Many of us have trouble with forgiveness. Sometimes the difficulty is granting forgiveness to someone who has deeply hurt, offended, or dishonored us. But sometimes the problem is with receiving forgiveness, either from another person or even from God. The whole Bible, and indeed our lessons for this day, make clear that whatever difficulties we might have with forgiveness, God is always reaching out to forgive our sin. God's grace is abundant. Accepting the divine gift can actually change our lives. Through God's forgiveness, we can find peace and purpose. Let's begin then with the psalm for the day, which is number 32. The psalm is one of thanksgiving for the forgiveness the petitioner experienced from God merely by acknowledging sin. Prior to that expression of guilt and reception of forgiveness, the psalmist's physical and emotional life was in ruin. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long for day and night your hand was upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer but then everything turned around then i acknowledged my sin to you and i did not hide my iniquity and i said i will confess my transgressions to the lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin that 
turning around is all a result of what the psalmist desires, of course. There is something about wanting to be healed that's critical, and the psalmist indicates very clearly that he or she came to the point where wanting it was essential because everything bodily and emotionally and spiritually was absolutely in chaos. And so he turned around and experienced such joy over this forgiveness and invites everybody to join his example because of the wondrous blessings that God's forgiveness can give. And in fact, as he instructs the people on how to go about this, I will instruct you, he begins in verse 8, and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He's already now taking on the form of a wisdom teacher as the psalm moves toward its conclusion, which is, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the joy that comes when we ask God for forgiveness and can be quite confident that God will deliver it because that, in essence, is the nature of God. first lesson for the day is from 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 26 through chapter 12 verse 10 and then verses 13 to 15. My summary of the passage goes like this, again answering the questions what is God doing here and what's the situation in which God is doing it. So it goes like this, in spite of the sinfulness of God's people, God nevertheless forgives sin and uses people in the pursuit of God's mission on earth. The story is, of course, a very familiar one. It made the movies and probably will many different times because it's really kind of spicy. Chapter 11 begins with David's view of Bathsheba's rooftop bath. It goes on to tell of the relationship that developed between the two, the subsequent sexual intercourse between them, her conception, thanks to David, and then David's strategy to have her husband Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. Our passage actually begins with Bathsheba hearing about the death of Uriah in battle. She made her appropriate lamentation. It doesn't say that she really was in grief, but nevertheless she did what was expected of her to do, went through all the mourning rites, and then when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his home, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then in the very last verse of chapter 11, part of our pericope, are these words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, I would think. Displeased is probably a very, very mild term. He had just committed adultery with another man's wife, and he had the man killed. There go two of the commandments right off the bat. Well, now, what happened? David, how, how does God respond to this? The Lord, in fact, sent a prophet, a spokesperson. That is, a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. And Nathan, that prophet, came to David and told a parable about two men, one who was rich and one who was poor, and you know the story, so I don't need to go into that. point of the matter is that the rich man took advantage of the poor man, in fact took what very little he had, 
in order to please himself. When David heard this parable, he was really angry against that man of the story, and said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then these powerful words from the spokesperson for the Lord. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then, speaking the word of God, thus says the Lord, Nathan reminded David of what God had done for him. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And then it goes on to reiterate the whole past story about how everything that was Saul's now became David's. I anointed you, is the way it begins. David was anointed as a very young boy by the prophet Samuel, and that's all the way back in First Samuel chapter 16. And he was anointed again by the elders of Israel who wanted David to be the king over Israel as well as over Judah, and that anointing took place in Second Samuel 5. But the reference here is to God's anointing, and so it must be an allusion to that earlier one in 1 Samuel 16, when David was a mere child, and Samuel anointed David to be king. Now that's probably it. God has been at work in David's life ever since his childhood to bring him to this point of being king, and look what you've done with it, David. You have taken another man's wife in adultery, and you have had the man killed. On the basis of everything that God has done for David, the question is asked through Nathan, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? According to Proverbs 14.2, one who despises the Lord is devious in his ways. And in 1 Samuel 2, the wicked priestly house of Eli will suffer disaster because they despise the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord that seems to be despised here, of course, are the commandments prohibiting murder and adultery. Despise the Lord. That really does cause a break in the relationship between God and Israel and throws in God's face everything God had done in the past. When that speech was over, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Having heard this whole speech of what God has done and how David has despised the Lord in spirit, spite of it. David acknowledges his sinfulness. He is doing exactly what the psalmist in number 32 has instructed people to do. Because the psalmist confessed and acknowledged his sin before the Lord, everything turned around. And that's what he instructed others to do. David is following that kind of advice wherever he got it. And he is acknowledging his sin now. And Nathan, surprisingly, speaks the words forgiveness. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That, interestingly enough, was the verdict that David had assigned to the richer man who cheated the poor man in the parable. But that's not going to be David's fate. You shall not die. God will nevertheless hold David and Bathsheba accountable for what they've done, and the unfortunate victim of that would be the baby that will be born to them. But the striking thing is that God does not remove David from the throne. 
God does not deny David the responsibility that God placed upon him to be the king of Israel. God has, in fact, all the way back in chapter 7 of Second Samuel, promised that every king that succeeded David throughout his dynasty would not be taken off the throne even when they offended the Lord. They would be punished, but only according to the law that one would expect but never removed from the throne, because God's promise, which will ultimately come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Davidic line, that will not be stopped because of the sinfulness of God's people. God has a purpose in mind, God has a goal, and it will be ultimately to forgive everyone. That's the nature of God, and it's already in action. Here and now, in this story, what is God doing here? Gospel for the day is Luke chapter 7 verse 36 through chapter 8 verse 3. My summary of the passage goes like this. It's slightly different from the usual two questions, but to make an emphasis. God in Christ forgives those who need forgiveness and come to him humbly, thereby enabling them to be lovers and to live in peace. Following the discussion about John the Baptist Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus spoke of the fickleness of the people of his times. They accuse John of possessing a demon because he does not eat normal food or drink. Yet they accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard because he does eat and drink, and besides that, he is a friend of sinners. Now our passage tells us that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. It's an interesting thing that if Jesus is considered a rabbi in any sense of the word at all, then there is need on the part of the members of the Jewish community to feed their rabbis. Rabbis didn't really get a salary. They had no way to sustain themselves except by the generosity of other people. And so Jesus does dine out quite a bit because other people recognize he's a rabbi and they treat him accordingly. Jesus does, of course, identify himself with the poor in many, many different ways. The nature of his birth, as Luke describes it, is certainly that of a poor person. Jesus is identified as the poor in any number of places. He doesn't have a job. He's really unemployed. At least he's without a salary. And that says something about the poor and the identification of Jesus with those who are without In Luke's Gospel, it's a very big issue, the contrast between the rich and the poor, and the identification of Jesus with the poor. So he's he's being invited out here, and uh, one of the Pharisees, uh, who is doing his appropriate thing, inviting a rabbi to dinner, plays a critical role in the story. A woman in the city shows up, having learned that he was eating the house, and it doesn't really tell us much about her except that she was a sinner. Now, it doesn't really tell us what her sinfulness consisted of, but Jesus is a friend of sinners, according to the accusation only three verses earlier. And so she's a sinner. Uh, We often assume that she is a prostitute, but there's no direct evidence for that, although indirectly it's interesting that the Pharisee remarks 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. It's also interesting that the people around, the people in the party, seem to know her by sight. Uh, nevertheless, let's not go any further with that because it isn't uh, important. Because Simon the Pharisee is thinking this, Jesus responds to it. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't have to express himself verbally? Jesus already knows what he's saying, and Jesus says, Therefore, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, Teacher, speak. And Jesus tells a parable. It's interesting. That's what Nathan did for David back in our first lesson for the day. Told a parable. And let the hearer of the parable come to a conclusion. And, and so here, Jesus tells the parable about a, a certain creditor who had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other only 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. And then Jesus asked the question, now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he counseled the greater debt. And Jesus said, right on. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And then Jesus goes on to talk about all the things that she did for him that he did not do for him. Bathed his feet, kissed him, anointed his head with oil. At other places in the New Testament, they are truly terms of loving. According to Second Corinthians 2, tears demonstrate Paul's love for the Corinthians. Kiss denotes forgiving love in Luke 15. It shows tender affection at Acts 20. It shows Christian affection in Romans 16 and in 1 Corinthians 16. An anointing, the head with oil, is done by a host to an honored guest, and that's really part of that very, very, very popular Psalm number 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. It's when God gives a meal for the psalmist. You, God, anoint my head with oil. Check out the show notes to see where all those places occur specifically in the Bible, but tears, kiss, anoint are all part of the action of loving. And that is what the woman does. Now when we get to verse 47 in the passage, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. Now there's a big question here. It, does it mean hence, or does it mean because? Does Jesus announce her forgiveness because she has shown love, or does she show love because she has been forgiven? Well, I think there are ways that the same Greek words could go in either direction. But the point of the parable that Jesus just told is that the one who loves is the one who is forgiven the greater debt. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. The forgiveness leads to her actions of loves. The tense of the verb is also very important. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. It's the perfect tense of the verb that appears here. And then again in verse 48, when Jesus says directly to the woman, your sins are, have been forgiven. It's a theological passive. Of course, God is the forgiver of the sins announced through the Son of God, Jesus. But nevertheless, the question is again, why the perfect tense? Does it mean that it's a completed act, it's done, she is forgiven? Does it mean, perhaps, that Jesus and this woman have had previous contact? After all, he was previously, right prior to this episode, accused of being a friend of sinners. Was she one of them? 
And, and did Jesus already forgive her sins so that at this point he can say, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Therefore, she performed these acts of love, of tears and kiss and anoint. The whole story seems to lead in that direction, that somehow she has already experienced the forgiveness of sins, and so her crashing the party this way in order to demonstrate this love for Jesus is the result of what she has already known. The forgiveness leads to her actions of love. That's a difference that forgiveness makes in life. But there's another difference. When this whole little incident is over, Jesus says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. That is, your acceptance of who I am and your acceptance of God's forgiveness. That all has brought you into the realm of salvation. So go in peace. That is, now you can proceed through your life in peace, not in contention, not in fear of everyone else taking over your life, not in the agony that you aren't important to anybody, but go in peace. God loves you. I love you. I've forgiven your sins. Your life is different. Now go in peace. Now that same dismissal occurs in chapter 8 and verse 48, where Jesus likewise commends a woman for her faith and orders her to go in peace. Faith brings peace. It's a common teaching of the Apostle Paul that peace is one of the results of God's forgiveness. Now the passage moves on into chapter 8 by telling us that soon after this he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. What does that distinction mean? Why two verbs proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God? It, It seems to me that the two verbs indicate one action. The preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom indicate that the preaching itself, the telling of it, already is accomplishing the kingdom's presence in the lives of people. There is a list then of women who have been supporting Jesus, um, and they are named. Uh, There is Mary, called Magdalene, and there are Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Chusa and Susanna, and many others who provided for Jesus out of their resources. It's not necessary that any one of these women named are the woman who had just been forgiven in the previous story. The tradition, of course, developed, as we know from books and movies, that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute whom Jesus forgave. Uh, But there's really no indication of that at all. There is simply an unknown woman of the story in Simon's house. And then there are these other women who are mentioned. It's almost as though Luke is putting together a collection of stories of women, put them all in one place, but they don't necessarily help us identify the woman of the story. She has a fame about her because she represents us rather than a specific individual in the life of Jesus. We are the ones whom God forgives, and we are the ones who are called to express that forgiveness in the way we live our lives in loving service to Christ, and we do that by loving one another. second lesson is from Galatians 2 verses 15 through 21. I summarize the passage like this. Against those who would presume to contribute to their own innocence before God, God justifies, declares innocent, those who believe in Christ 
calling them to surrender their old identity in order to live as persons in whom Christ resides. This chapter, actually starting in verse 11, is really not a very nice presentation of what the early church was like, but it's very realistic and rings some very familiar chimes to all of us here and now. There was a great deal of contention. The contention with which Paul is dealing here is the contention between himself and Peter, but the issue is the same one which caused Paul to write this letter to the Galatians in the first place, and that is the addition of Jewish regulations and laws and expectations and rights to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had indicated earlier that when he established these congregations in Galatia, he did it on the basis of the gospel, that is, God's justification of the sinner. That justification has nothing to do with our contributions, it has only to do with God's grace. And by the time you get to this point in the letter, Paul is stretching the old dirty laundry out on the line for all to see. It really goes right back to the heart of the discussion that he's been having with Peter and James, representatives of the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, over against the call to apostleship which Paul received from the risen Lord himself. So Paul here is concluding his discussion of the argument with Peter regarding the imposition of Jewish practices on Gentiles who have become Christians. The apostle insists that such an intrusion into the gospel negates it and surrenders the gospel to the whims of human traditions. And now immediately prior to our pericope, Paul wrote of this encounter with Cephas, Peter. Before James' representatives from Jerusalem appeared on the scene, Cephas ate with Gentiles. After their coming, he withdrew. It's really a charge of hypocrisy against the chief apostle of the church, Peter. The passage with which we are dealing here, verses 15 to 21, is a bit complex, and there are many, many things stacked into it, but it all comes back to this understanding of justification. Now, remember there are many words in the New Testament that are used for what ultimately becomes a kind of forgiveness of sins. How does God deal with sinners? Paul's favorite expression in all that, of course, is justification. It's a matter of being declared innocent and therefore made innocent by God's announcement alone. And that announcement comes to people who are obviously and unequivocally guilty. That's the astounding thing Paul wants to announce. This is what the risen Christ called him to say, to speak to Gentiles about the fact that you don't have to become Jewish in order to be justified. That is God's act alone. God declares us innocent, sends us in peace, and makes us new persons. Paul uses it for himself, but he means it for all. In baptism, we die with Christ so that we might emerge as new beings. It's a matter of identity, you see. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me, and now I live by faith in the Son of God. So it's the purity of the gospel, and I suspect that that's really what's behind many of the contentions in the church today. How many issues do we need to add to the gospel in order to make ourselves the church. We don't make ourselves the church by the things we do. God declares us innocent in spite of ourselves. God calls us together through the Spirit to be the church, 
and it is not our role to constantly add conditions for making that membership possible. God alone calls us, lives in us, and sets us free. That ends our discussion of the passages for Lectionary 11, Third Sunday after Pentecost, Year C. In the next episode, we will talk about the lessons for Lectionary 12, the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. You will benefit from reading in advance of the podcast the biblical passages for that day. They will be Psalm 22, verses 19 through 28. The first lesson will be Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 9. The second lesson is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, and the gospel for the day will be Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. Be sure to look up the show notes and the accompanying blog at wrestlingwiththeword.com to help you prepare for listening. Before signing off, I want to thank the Cats in the Hats for their music. Their song is their exciting version of Fear Elise. I also express my gratitude to my wife Janine for her very careful editing of the show notes, and I am especially grateful to my daughter Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. <laughs>